Oh, and I'm Jem, or Jemima, or Jim, for one person in the room, I think. Um, I'm, yeah, so fun to be here with you this morning and to worship with you this morning. I've had a great time. Um, have you noticed how many of the films that come out at the moment are remakes of old films? We watched in our house, was it this week, last week? <laughs> Fairly recently, we watched the new West Side Story film. Um, and even though I had never seen that film, I already knew every song and every twist in the plot. Um, because that film is the exact same story of a film that has already come out in 2005. It's a film that my mum really loves, so it's one that I know very well. Um, and so as I watched this new film that I'd never seen before, all of it felt familiar to me already. Um, West Side Story itself as well, just I don't know if you know, is based on Romeo and Juliet. So West Side Story anyway is not a new story. It's an old story that has been retold and retold and retold. Um, but I think there's just something about people, or I know definitely about me, that we like hearing old stories that we know told in a new way. Disney are well onto this, aren't they? The Lion King remake in 2019 was the highest grossing animated film of all time. The, the remake, I don't understand. Um, and like, how many people uh, that went to go and see that story already knew that film, already knew exactly what they were going to go and see, already knew the story. There were no surprises for them. But we like a new story told in an old way. No, an old story told in a new way. Or actually, in the case of Lion King, we don't like it because they don't tell it enough, like, well enough and we get very angry about it. <laughs> what confuses or, or baffles me as well is that there would have been some people going and seeing The Lion King, that new remake, that won't have been aware of the original. Like, probably young kids only, let's be honest. But they might not have seen the original film. They wouldn't have understood that this is already an established story that is known and loved. Um, maybe wouldn't have understood some of how like meaningful this is as a film in our culture and our um, yeah lives. It's not meaningful in our lives. <laughs> um, but Paul uses this exact same idea when he's talking about the gospel in Colossians chapter one verses thirteen to fourteen. It's where we're going to start today. The verses will appear. They already have appeared on the screen. It says. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, when we read that, we might be like, ah, oh, Paul's put in a really fun new spin on the gospel. Like, what a helpful way for you to talk about that, Paul. But if we're saying that, it's because we're unaware that Paul here is actually retelling an old story that people already knew. Paul is telling the story of the gospel as an echo of the original story of the Exodus, where God draws his people out of a foreign land to become his people. And the Exodus was a story known by every Jewish person. They will have grown up with this story. It will be ingrained in their minds, in their hearts. They probably are dreaming about the Exodus story. They'll have be telling it to their children, they'll be singing songs about it, they'll tell it every year at Passover, they'll be writing poems about it. They know the Exodus story. It is the story of how the Hebrew people were led out of Egypt. They started there when that guy Joseph with the multicolored coat, him, um, ended up in a position of power in Egypt. But things went sour and the, his family, his people, became slaves in the land. 
Exodus is a story of how God delivers his people back out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. So when Paul talks about us being delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to a kingdom of the sun, he is taking us back to that original story all those years ago of a people taken out of one place and brought into a new place. And that is where we're going to go this morning. One of the reasons that this was such a significant story for the Hebrews was because it was such a like, like long part of their history. Um, they were in the land of Egypt for about 430 years. Now, to put that into perspective, that is about the same amount of time as America has existed. The first colony in America was established in, no, 415 years ago. So just 15 years out. 430 years is enough time for a whole nation to be established. And in the case of the Hebrews, their nation was established into slavery under the Egyptians. Put yourself there. You live in the land as a slave. Your parents lived in the same land as slaves, as did your grandparents. The life of a slave is the only life you've ever known. The Egyptians think of your people as pests in the land. You have no rights, no prospects, no provisions, no protections, no safety. They have made your life bitter with heavy burdens and hard service. They have hurt you, abused you, and beaten you. And a few years ago, they even started taking your babies, your sons, and your brothers, and throwing them into the Nile to drown. So you cry out for help. But maybe you're not even really sure who you're crying out to. You know the stories of the God who led your ancestors to this place, but you don't know this God. And you definitely don't think that he cares for you or your people because he's left you here to suffer for so very long. So surely either he doesn't care or he's as powerless as you are against the rulers of Egypt. But you cry out anyway because you're hopeless and desperate and because you don't know what else to do. Until one day, a man turns up who is both a prince in this land and who is also a Hebrew, like you. He claims that the God of your ancestors has spoken to him. He claims that this God is going to rescue your people and bring you into a new land of provision. And for the first time in your life, you begin to feel hope. Then this man gives sign after sign, displaying the power of this God across the whole land of Egypt. He starts by turning the Nile to blood. And then come frogs and gnats, fiery hail from the sky, locusts and even darkness upon the whole land. And then another word comes. This God is going to deliver your people by bringing death to every single household. And he gives some very specific instructions for how your family can avoid this death that is coming. All of your people are to take a spotless lamb and you are all to put it to death at twilight. But you must be careful not to break any of the lamb's bones while you do that. And then you have to drain the lamb's blood into a basin and then use a very specific plant called hyssop, dip it into the basin of blood and paint your doorpost with it. And then you are to eat the flesh of the same lamb whose blood is on your doorpost 
while dressed, ready for a journey. And you are to make sure that none of this lamb is left until morning. Now, you're living in a time when sacrificing to gods is a pretty common idea. So you're used to the idea of killing an animal to appease a god. But you're not used to all these incredibly specific rules. And you're not used to painting your door frames with the blood of the animals that are being killed. But you're told that through this strange ritual, the death that is coming to Egypt will pass over your household. And that this night will be remembered as a night where death passed over forever. And so you faithfully take your lamb, and at twilight, there is a great slaughter in the land of Egypt, as each house kills their lamb. And just as instructed, you paint your doorframe with its blood, and you go inside to eat this meal. And it's the strangest meal you've ever eaten. There you are, huddled together with your family in the night, with shoes and coat on, and a packed bag on your back, eating the flesh of a lamb whose blood is on your door and bread that is unrisen because you haven't even had time to bake it properly. And as you eat all around, you can hear the cries and the screams in the houses and out on the street as the firstborn son of every Egyptian household dies. And even as it's happening, you're maybe wondering how on earth this is going to save you. This does not feel like a salvation story. And yet suddenly, abruptly, the command comes from Pharaoh and the Egyptians who have been your slave masters for your whole life. And they say, you need to leave now. And you all exit in a hurry in the night, passing under the bloody door frames out onto the street, more than a million people all on foot, following the man from God out of Egypt and through a sea to be brought into a new land and be formed into a new free kingdom. The Bible uses the story and the language of the Exodus where God drew his people out again and again and again and again. You'll find the story in the Psalms, you'll find it in the prophets, you'll find it in the New Testament, you'll find it everywhere. This is the central story of the Hebrews. It is the story of salvation. It's the story of freedom. No other story would be so deeply associated with redemption from death. And it was their story. So every year the Israelites would relive the story with the Passover. They'd go back and they'd eat the lamb and the, well, they wouldn't go back to Egypt, but they'd <laughs> eat the lamb and the bread. And they'd participate in this Passover meal. And as they did that, they are making it into not just a story that is true for their ancestors, not just something that happened long ago. They are making it their own story. The thing is, that exodus, it didn't really last. It didn't really work. God did draw his people out. He did form them into a new nation. But it wasn't actually long before that nation kind of forgot God again, turned away from him. The nation ended up being fractured into two. And both of those halves ended up going back into exile in separate lands a lot later. And so there came a time when the prophets started to prophesy that there was going to be a new exodus. Where God was going to draw his people out again and gather them together from many nations and form them once again into a new kingdom. And one day, this man comes to earth and he is both a prince 
of everywhere. And he is a man just like you. The stage is set for the new exodus to take place. Now, in a play of the exodus, imagine we were going to do a church play of the exodus for some reason. (laughs) What character would you want to play in that? I imagine quite a few people would go for the hero that confronts Pharaoh and leads all of the Hebrews out of Egypt. Maybe if you're someone that doesn't like to be at the forefront of things, maybe you'd want to play Hebrew number 32, um, hidden in the background a bit more. Maybe if you're somebody that likes to play the villain, um, you'd want to be the ruler of Egypt who we all have to escape from. I'll tell you what role nobody is fighting over is the role of the lamb. No one is clamoring to be the lamb. Because this isn't just like in a nativity, the kind of lame role of the lamb. This is a slaughtered and bloody lamb. It's not the role that anyone's after. And yet, John, in his gospel, writes the story of the crucifixion to show us that that is exactly the role that Jesus takes. In chapter 19, we get loads of these clues that show us um, that John is, is painting this story with Jesus as the lamb. The first one that's obvious um, is in verse 14, where we see that John says that it's the day of the preparation of the Passover that, where Jesus was handed over to be crucified, which means that this day that everyone's killing their lambs getting ready for that Passover meal in the evening, as all those lambs are being killed, Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying. A bit later, in verse 29, John starts talking about a jar of sour wine that stands by the cross, which, I'm sure you'll agree, might have looked a bit like a basin of blood. And he says that when Jesus was thirsty the people by him dipped the sponge into this sour wine, put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. Just like all those years ago when the Israelites had dipped a hyssop branch into the basin of blood and touched it to their doorposts. In verse 31, John goes on to tell us that because it was about to be a Sabbath, the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies to remain on the cross because it's a bit unsightly for a holy day to have all these people being executed. So they asked that the bodies be taken down. This sounds a lot like the command that God gave that none, none of the lamb that is eaten was to be allowed to remain until the next morning. Similarly, Jesus' body was not allowed to remain until the next morning. And then last one, in verse 33, we get that story of the soldiers approaching Jesus to break his legs and getting there and realizing that he is already dead. And so because of that, not one of the bones in his body is broken. And just in case we've missed every clue that's gone past us, John at this point really explicitly tells us these things happened to fulfill the scripture that not one of his bones will be broken. John is trying to hit home the point that this is a new Exodus story. It is playing out all over again in front of our eyes. This Exodus, where God draws his people out from a foreign land, is happening again. Now, you might be thinking, great, but I've never been a slave in Egypt. So, 
not really very relevant to me. And that's great news. I'm very glad that you've never been a slave in Egypt. But in the original Exodus story, it's true, the land of slavery was Egypt. But in Jewish thought, Egypt was symbolic of a land of darkness and death. And you have been slaves in a land of darkness and death. In fact, the Bible says that not only were we slaves there, but we were dead in our transgressions. We weren't just in need of a bit of godly help to help us to live better lives. We were not alive at all. We needed a deliverance that would sweep us up out of death with a full and total salvation. We needed to come out of the place of darkness and death, and we needed to be taken to a new place of freedom and life. For the Israelites, the way out of the land of darkness and death was through a bloody doorway. And if we are to escape the domain of darkness, we also need a doorway to go through. It's just like if, um, if the wall burst into flames behind me, hopefully someone would tell me, but then also you'd head through some fire exits. There are doors all around us that are here to give us exits so we can escape if there is danger here. They provide a way out for us. In this room, we have four fire exits here, 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 and here. But there is only one doorway through which we can go to escape the domain of darkness and the shadow of death. The cross on which Jesus shed his blood has become the doorpost of the world. Just like in the original story, the bloody wood of the cross becomes a door that opens up the way for us out of the land of our slavery. It's a door that we can go through to get into freedom and life. When the Israelites left Egypt, Egypt, they passed under the bloody lamb. They passed under the death of the slaughtered lamb into life. And as Jesus surrenders his life in a painful and humiliating execution that we looked at last week. It might not look at first like a story of victory, but it is there that he becomes our Passover lamb. And as we pass under the death of our slaughtered bloody lamb to escape death, we enter into the new kingdom. As we passed under the death of the lamb, Death passed over us, and we entered eternal life. This exodus is the perfect exodus. This one isn't going to be temporary. This one is a new kingdom that is not going to fracture. This story will stand for eternity. In this exodus, God draws his people out of the foreign land for good. We are free. One of the details of the original Exodus story that I find really interesting, that I really love, is that it wasn't just the Hebrew slaves that God drew out of the land. In the Exodus of Israel, um, God drew Hebrew slaves, but he also drew out some of the Egyptian oppressors with them. It says that a mixed multitude went up with them. And I actually think that we can identify with both parties in this story that simultaneously we are the 
um, Hebrew slaves, helpless to and held captive by sin. We need help. We are held in bondage. But also, like the Egyptians, we are complicit to, or were complicit to, and partners with the regime of sin. There's kind of these dual storylines going on. And just as we are slaves, we also join with the oppression. But if the Hebrew slaves don't come out of the land, they remain slaves to death. If the Egyptian oppressors do not come out of the land, they end up participating in the sins of the land. And that leads to judgment and death. So no matter who you are, if you're staying in the land of Egypt, it leads to death. Which is why it's so fun that in the original story, the call wasn't just to the people of um, Hebrew the people of Israel, to come out of the land. The call was to everybody. The way was open to everybody to come out of the land. He called out the oppressor as well as the oppressed. And that is still his call. We can hear it again in Revelation 18. He says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. It's the same call. It's not changed. And this is our story we are a people who were called out, just like the Israelites. This new exodus becomes the center point of our history. It's the forming event that gives us our whole identity. This is the story we tell over and over and over again. You can't tell it too much. If you don't know what to bring in worship and you want to bring a contribution, you can't tell the story of the cross too much. We cannot look at the crucifixion for too long. We just can't do it. Can we get the band back up? Um, a few thousand years ago, um, a man sitting with his friends, sharing for the last time the meal that told the original story of the Exodus, started to give instructions for how we are to tell the story of the new exodus that was about to happen. Just before the time of his own slaughter, our Passover lamb picked up the bread on the table and he said to those that he was about to die for, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he picked up a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood. And he gave the bread to them to eat and he gave the wine to them to drink. Just like the Israelites, we are told to retell and to relive the story of our escape by eating the body of the slaughtered lamb whose blood is on our doorpost. So that's how we're going to respond again today. We are going to tell the story of our deliverance again through eating bread and drinking grape juice. Um, the band are going to play behind me um, and there are...